Greetings, Crestwick Church, near and far. We all long uh, with anticipation for the day when we can all gather uh, together in person here. But uh, by faith, I see you gathered in many different places. I never thought when I was a student in seminary a long time ago that someday I would be preaching to the church universal, but here we are in the World Wide Web. Exiles, strangers, pilgrims. We're getting the point, right? It's the way Peter describes the people of God in this age who are never fully at home in any of the cultures in which we find ourselves now. As we are exiles and pilgrims on our way to the eternal fulfillment of Christ's perfected kingdom when he comes to reign and to judge. And we live in sure and certain hope of that final form of his kingdom that we will inherit because God raised him from the dead and signified that he is the one who will reign, who will judge, who will save his people. But as we live now, Peter says, in a very realistic way, we don't see the fulfillment of Christ's perfect kingdom. And we who commit to live in obedience to Christ, our King, sometimes get pushback from the world around us that does not bow the knee to him. We, we've already thought a bit about the, the larger macro scale of that, in which the, the, the church as a wider community in the world is sometimes marginalized. And, and we have to sort out how it is that we live with respect for legitimate governing authorities while at the same time recognizing only Christ is ultimately our final authority. But the, the way it affects most of us typically is, is at a personal level. When, when some who were friends at one time cease to be friends, if your allegiance and your lifestyle change. Or families may say, we don't recognize you anymore. At work or school, you may feel marginalized. You may sometimes be ridiculed, slandered, mocked. And so we have to ask, how, how do we respond when we experience that kind of thing wherever we may be? Well, in the middle of Peter's epistle, through most of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, he gives very practical counsel about the way we navigate these waters. I won't read quite all of that, but let's hear his words starting at chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, 
Repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever among you would love life and see good days must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now over to chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So much that is there. Um, we could talk about many of those details for a long, long time. But I, I don't want all of you to go to sleep. So we'll focus. Focus on, on three points that Peter makes that are frankly very, very practical. When we think about how we respond to those who, who may take offense at our faith. The first, the first thing that we need to understand, the first point Peter makes in many ways is this. Don't assume the worst. Do not assume that every unbeliever around you is out to get you and is going to attack you. Now, I know they're not, you're not paranoid if they're after you, but they're not always after you. That, this is the point that he makes at, at 3.13, when he asks the question, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? 
Who's going to harm you if you're committed to doing good deeds, to living as a good neighbor, a good citizen, loving your neighbor as yourselves as Christ taught us? Now, I know he, he, it's phrased as a question, but often we use a question which has an obvious answer, an obviously expected answer, in order to make a point, don't we? So, if I say to students, will you fail the course if you faithfully do your reading and homework every week? I'm asking a question, but I'm really making a point. You're not going to fail the course if you stay up with, it, with the assignments and the reading. If my wife says to me, are you going to wear that shirt? The obvious response is, probably not. It's a question, but it's making a point. And, and that's what Peter's doing here. Really, stop and think it through. They, they may not share your understanding about God and Christ and the gospel, but, but if you do what's good, if you, if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you really are a good neighbor and a good citizen, how, how many people are going to attack you for that? Now, does it sometimes happen? Yes. And so he goes on to say, but even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Yes, sometimes it happens. But he's making the point, don't assume the worst. And yet we often do, don't we? we? We often get this complex, the persecution complex that says, they're not going to like me if I'm a faithful Christian. They may not. And yet, they may. Now, I know as soon as I say, don't assume the worst, somebody will say, well, do you remember the Beatitudes? At the very end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are you when they persecute you and they slander and they insult you because of me. They did it to the prophets, they'll do it to you. In, indeed, Jesus recognized that sometimes happens in this fallen world. But four verses later, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So if you ask, how will they respond if I live as a faithful disciple of Jesus in my world? Will they persecute me or will they appreciate me and be turned toward God? The answer is yes. Both those things happen. But we ought not assume the worst. You see, sometimes I think we, we spend too much time thinking about the big macro picture and tensions in our society and, and what some of the lobbies out there say about conservative Christians and so on and so on. And we think, that's the way all my neighbors fellow students, fellow workers are going to treat me. It's not true. Years ago, um, there was a, an evangelical pastor and author named Mel White, who in midlife came out as a gay man. And he and his wife 
amicably divorced, and he began living openly as a gay man. He had been a ghostwriter for Jerry Falwell, senior, among other things. And so, one day, one day he and Jerry Falwell, now recognizing they're very much opposed to one another about sexual ethics, co-sponsored a one-day conference to make the point we can live together in society in a civil and peaceful way even if we have serious differences on points like this. And both Mel and Jerry probably lost friends in their communities, but, but they, they were able to have a civil and respectful relationship, continue to do that, even though it now came about that they had a serious disagreement about sexual ethics. Similar thing happened to me years ago, decades ago, in my first pastoral ministry in Bloomington, Indiana. Bloomington became one of the first cities in the USA to add sexual orientation to the local human rights code. And so, in a strange sort of way, uh, that brought me as a leader in the County Evangelical Ministerial Association into ongoing contact with the president of the Bloomington Gay Alliance. And one day he said to me, Stan, would, would, would you be willing to lead a Bible study group for the Alliance? And I said, um, let's, let's make sure we're clear. Don't you understand? Based on my understanding of God's revealed will in Scripture, I can't affirm a gay lifestyle. Haven't I made that clear? And he said, I get that. We disagree. But he said, we have, we have quite a number of people in the alliance from evangelical backgrounds, and this would be good for them. And so I think I'm young in my first pastorate. I'm, what, 30 years old? And so I'm thinking, let's see. How will I talk with the church board about this? Because they're already suspicious about me because I, I'm, I actually am friends with Pentecostal pastors. Uh, this is going to be a giant step beyond that. Now, it never came to a formal invitation to actually do it. It was just the conversation. But, but, but the guy wasn't on the attack. We, we disagreed. We had expressed that disagreement, but it didn't mean we had to attack each other and demonize each other. I had the same experience just a few years ago when, when the Ontario, New Ontario sex ed curriculum was put into place. I was, I was in a conversation with a columnist for the Waterloo Region Record, Louisa D'Amato, about it, and about things that were being said about conservative Christians and their response to it. And and Louisa describes herself as a secular progressive. But in talking about it, I, I said to her, look, we, we need to find ways to live together in a civil and respectful way. That's my concern here. I understand that my understanding of sexuality, sexual ethics is not embraced by everybody around me. You and I don't, don't have the same view. 
But, but we shouldn't be demonizing one another. We should find ways to live together without calling each other names and ridiculing each other, even though we express disagreement honestly. And she said, look, I'm a secular progressive, but I agree with you. And this past January, when I wrote a column for the record, which they actually published, in which I tried to explain for the wider public why conservative Christians feel under attack right now, it was Louisa who facilitated its publication. And for that, of course, I, I have received some pushback from my evangelical friends because I am friendly with the secular media. But this is not my therapy session. This is time to make Peter's point. Don't assume the worst. If, what, what often happens is it's like, it's like we paint a target on our chest and we say, I'm a conservative Christian. Please persecute me. And we invite it. It happens. It does happen. Peter says you've got you to be prepared for it. But, but don't assume it's going to happen and invite it. Very practical strategy. A second point that he makes, crucial to remember. If you do suffer, make sure it's actually for doing good, for actually following Christ. Now, he, he makes that point in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when he says, as you're responding to people who say, what, what, is, what is your faith all about anyway? And you, they ask a reason for the hope that you have. If you go back to chapter 1, I would say the reason for the hope is because God raised Jesus, my Lord, from the dead. But as you respond, he says, make sure you keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior may be ashamed of their slander. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We've already seen this point back in chapter 2 about slaves and masters. Make sure if you're persecuted, it's, it's for doing good. And then over in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, If you suffer, don't let it be because you're a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a, a meddler, a, a busybody, a jerk. Don't be a jerk. It's a free translation of the Greek original, okay? But that's, that's the, the essence of the word, someone who runs around just creating trouble, not living like a good neighbor. So, so he makes the point, obviously, don't, don't be a criminal. You, you're justly punished for that. And don't even be a jerk. Sometimes... Christians who are ridiculed or mocked, slandered by others, made fun of by others, re receive that kind of attention, frankly, not because they've been Christ-like, but because they are jerks. Because they're smugly self-righteous. 
because they, they're improperly judgmental. They're always looking for what's wrong in someone else and never looking for what's wrong in themselves. Or some of it is really public. So, some of you, no doubt, are familiar with uh, Westboro Baptist Church, Topeka, Kansas, the late Pastor Fred Phelps and his family. I'm embarrassed that, it, that it's a Baptist church. I'm thankful it's a very small Baptist church because I would hate to think there are very many people like that. They, they became well-known around the USA especially, but North America more generally, for traveling to funerals for well-known people in the gay community, standing outside the funeral venue with signs that said things like, God hates fags. They even created a website, godhatesfags.com. I am not kidding. I, I wish that were a joke. It's not. Seriously, it's a website. And so when the public vilifies them for the way they treat other people, are they being persecuted for righteousness or are they being persecuted because they frankly are not good neighbors? They're right to say that homosexual practice is a sin. They're not right to act in that way toward their homosexual neighbors. Then I remember a personal case from years ago. It's actually the last year that, uh, that I lived and served as a pastor in the USA in 1977. Sometimes it's, uh, it's a problem if you have friends in high places. I had a phone call from a, a friend of my wife, well, a friend of both of us, but especially my wife, because she was one of my wife's classmates in nurses training another Christian nurse. So Linda called and said, Stan, I'm, I'm working now uh, for the State Department of Public Health. This is back in the state of Indiana. I'm, um, some of what I do is to travel to daycare centers and do a public health inspection to make sure they, uh, they're living with practicing within the regulations. She said there, there's a church uh, this church here, um, not so far from you, that operates a daycare center, and they refuse to allow me to do an inspection, claiming the state has no authority over the church, and so they're not going to submit to a public health inspection. What do you think about that? And I said, well, interestingly, we, we thought about the idea of having a daycare center at our church because we have a young woman who's who has training and early childhood education. And we thought about doing that, but, but we felt it was going to cost too much to upgrade the, the facilities to support that sort of thing to meet the standards. But I said the standards are legitimate. It's an obviously legitimate concern for public health. And so um, churches isn't told they can't be the church. Of course, the church ought to comply. Well, a couple of months later, I got a subpoena 
from the state attorney general. To appear as a state witness in the trial of that pastor and church. Not exactly the way I wanted to spend one of my days. So I went, and when I got there, I, I saw a bunch of church buses parked in the blocks around the county courthouse. And I thought, this is not good. And I got inside to a packed courtroom. Uh, mostly people from conservative churches saying, this is about the church defending itself against the state. And, and in fact, I, I met on the way in to, to the courtroom, I met a guy I knew from my home church who said to me, wow, I'm so glad you're here, Stan. And I thought, probably not, actually. And he wasn't happy that I was there. So I ended up as a, test, as a witness for the state. Uh, when, when the hours-long proceeding came to an end and we were finished for the day, the trial wasn't finished, but we were finished for that day, the attorney general, seeing the, the tension in the room, said to me, uh, do I need to give you police protection to get to your car? And I said, well, I hope not. And beyond all that, I'm just about to immigrate to Canada, so I'm fleeing the country anyway. And let's put it this way. As I made my way to my car, some of those dear brothers and sisters in the family of God slid down the windows on their church buses and, and said things to me that I didn't think brothers and sisters said to one another. Then I got letters a few days later from pastors saying, I don't know how you can lay your head on the pillow and sleep at night. Now, frankly, the church wasn't being persecuted because they preached the gospel, weren't being persecuted because of their faith. They were being persecuted because they wouldn't obey a very legitimate law about meeting basic health standards if they were going to have young kids in there all day. But they thought they were being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So Peter says, stop and think it through and make sure that if they're pushing back, they're pushing back because you're a faithful Christ follower, not because you're a jerk. And then Thirdly, if you do suffer, respond gently. Now, you can go back to chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. And then in chapter 3, 14 to 16, we've already looked at that where he says, if people ask you, why do you believe all this? As you respond, do it with gentleness and respect. So what Peter is saying is, when those who don't believe the gospel, who don't share our faith, may insult you, slander you, 
may ostracize you, you ought to respond gently and respectfully. Now, these, these are people who are at some level opposed to the faith, opposed to the truth of God. Why would we respond gently to people who oppose God's truth? Well, there are a number of reasons. At a very strategic level, we might go back to the Proverbs, to a passage like, say, Proverbs 15:1, where we read, a gentle answer turns away anger. So, strategically, the way to defuse a situation like that is not to respond in kind, but to respond kindly. Beyond that, we would have to recognize, to go back to the beginning, back to Genesis, all human beings are made in the image of God. The image of God is marred and distorted in all of us. Salvation is about restoring us more fully to the image of God, but all, all persons are made in God's image and therefore valuable and worthy of respect. Beyond that, we're called to be godly, like God. And to imitate God, we respond to people who are unbelieving with kindness and mercy. Back, the Apostle Paul puts it this way back in Titus chapter 3, where he's, he says, teach them to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. And this is to Titus, ministering on the island of Crete, which was notoriously pagan. Why would we be that way, gentle toward everyone? Because at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Why should we act towards such unbelievers kindly, gently, mercifully? Because that's the way God acted toward you and me. I, there, there are several practical stories I could tell illustrating that, but let me just tell this one. This goes back to 2012. There, were, there was an ongoing controversy that year about Chick-fil-A, the, re the restaurant chain, owned by a Christian family because the, uh, through their foundation they had made, made donations to various organizations that were defending traditional understanding of marriage as opposed to that demanded by the LGBTQ lobby. It was, it was in the news. Um, there were boycotts of Chick-fil-A restaurants. And then there were days when Christians turned out in droves 
to have a Chick-fil-A sandwich and waffle fries. The waffle fries are great, by the way. Um, and by the way, I should add, in, in a very few days, there will be a Chick-fil-A opening in Kitchener on Fairway Road. Just saying. A little advertisement. Anyway, there's this animosity between the LGBTQ community and Chick-fil-A that year. So in January 2013, I, I, I found online this blog written by Shane Windmeyer, who who was the uh, president of the executive director of Campus Pride. It was the leading organization for LGBTQ students on university campuses. He and his organization were organizing protests against Chick-fil-A that year. He was, he was provoked by Dan Cathy, this, the uh, president of Chick-fil-A, and his comments in defense of marriage as the union of one man and one woman. And so he, he's, he's gearing up to his protests, and in August of 2012, he says, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. Dan got Shane's cell phone number from a mutual business acquaintance, and he called so he said, he was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind. Turn his lawyers on me? Actually, he said the first call lasted over an hour. The private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. And that began a long series of personal interactions in which Dan never changed his convictions. But he reached out to Shane in love and kindness and, and, and tried to understand where he was coming from, tried to talk honestly about the fact that his defense of traditional marriage did not mean hatred for those who had other views. Ultimately, um, Chick-fil-A bowl uh, sponsored then, I think they still sponsor one of the annual American college football bowl games during the holidays. So that year, the Chick-fil-A Bowl was played on New Year's Eve, and Dan Cathy invited Shane Winmeyer to be his personal guest to sit with him and his family at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, allowed the pictures to be taken of the two of them together, one of which is showed up here in the blog, and, and out of all that, Shane wrote this blog and said, now it's all about the future, one defined, let's hope, by continued mutual respect. I will not change my views, and Dan will likely not change his, but we can continue to listen, learn, and appreciate the blessing of growth that happens when we know each other better. I hope that our nation's political leaders and campus leaders might do the same. Now, as, as he said, unfortunately, as far as we know, it hasn't brought about a change of view of Shane Windmeyer, but it, it gave him a different way of thinking about those who are conservative, Christian, faithful disciples of Jesus. 
So when you're tempted to return insult for insult or run away and hide, why don't you say instead, hey, can, can I treat you to a coffee and we can talk about it? Actually, I mean, treat them to whatever Starbucks calls their largest frappuccino or something like that. I can never keep those size names straight. Say, can I, can, I, can I treat you to lunch and we can talk about it? Rather than returning insult for insult. So, we suffer injustice if we suffer insult, marginalization for the sake of Christ. Yes, doesn't God care about justice? Of course he does. And so in the rest of chapter 4, Peter makes the point, God is, through Christ, going to judge the world in perfect righteousness at the end of this age. And then, just as God vindicated Jesus when he raised him from the dead, God will vindicate his people in the end. You can count on that. Actually, next week, we're going to look at another piece of chapter 3 that focuses on all that. We don't know what lies ahead for faithful Christians in, in our place in the world. We really don't know. What we do know is that Peter's words will always be relevant, and we are always called to imitate Christ, who is full of both grace and truth. So, so don't assume the worst, and make sure you're not being persecuted for doing what's evil. And if you do suffer for doing good, make sure you respond in a godly way, gently. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And if we're followers of Jesus, we'll be that too. Let's pray. Lord, you call us to be faithful followers of Christ in our time and place where you have put us. And so make us understanding and wise, truthful and loving. Enable us by your work of your spirit in us to display the fullness of Christ, our Lord, that others may see and be drawn to him. We ask in his name. Amen.